Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Mark. I've kind of waited to be able to say this. My name is Mark, and I'm not one of the pastors here. But I have been entrusted with breaking open the Word of God this morning, so I hope that we can receive this as, as from the Lord himself, because we're looking at his God-breathed, heaven-sent Word together. Amen? Uh, before we get into our first slide, I just want to say a, a thank you to Antioch. Because most of you don't know it, but there was a wedding reception in here last night. Uh, Our daughter, Rebecca, got married, uh, the last of our four daughters to get married. Amen. And she married a a wonderful young man that also loves the Lord. They are both about 28 years old, and they have waited for the right spouse. Waiting is better than settling for something less than what God has. So they, they were married in another church in town that didn't have room for a reception, and uh, we talked to folks here, and so we had about 140 people in here last night, and it was the wee hours of the morning before it was totally cleaned up and put back together. So if your seat is not exactly where it was, um, come see me afterwards, and I'll say, hey, sorry, but I can't fix it. You know? God is good. Amen? So we're, we're very, very, very grateful that we have a family that is flexible. Amen. Okay, so we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 47 today. Uh, Young disciples, if you have a sheet, it's really easy. Okay, kids, you can be dismissed. And we say to you, you are sent. Amen. I'm really excited this morning. I don't have a color printer at home. And so today I printed on the office printer, and I actually have the scripture verses in red. It's going to make it a little easier to follow. So God is good. So the message this morning is from Genesis chapter 47, and the title is real simple, Sojourners and Settlers. And I'm very grateful for the way that the the songs and the liturgy and everything has already worked together today to fit this theme of, we are on a journey brothers and sisters, but we also have a choice. If we insist on not being on a journey, we will be seen as settlers, and it just doesn't work out as well. So two main points today, and uh, young disciples, if you've got, a, uh, got one of the sheets there, this, is, this fills in your blanks. The heart of a sojourner is humble, and God exalts the humble. The heart of a settler is proud. And God humbles the proud. So there are three distinct passages and sections of this chapter that we'll be walking through. But, but this is the gist of the whole thing. The heart of a sojourner, one that knows they're on a pilgrimage, on a journey, has a humble heart before God and other people. And God is able to exalt and lift up. Now Hebrews talks about it being exalted in due time. And the heart of a settler is, is one of pride in what they own. As we sang, our worth as believers is not in what we own. And God humbles the proud. Now, it's part of my Christian testimony that when I became a believer in 1974 and I bought my first Bible, I bought a living Bible because I was told it would be really easy to read. Uh, Not so great for exegetical study, but it was really good for reading. And everywhere I turned, God was dealing with something. And he's poking at pride. In some of my early days as a Christian, we're like, oh, I don't like that verse. Oh, I don't like that verse. Oh, he's getting me. 
Have you ever stumbled on a theme that God is after in your life? Well, God was after pride, but I thought I was masking my pride well. My pride was in my heart. And God's word is incredible about breaking open and exposing the things that are in our hearts. Amen? Okay, so let's jump in. And Genesis chapter 47. We're going to talk about how Jacob's family settles in Goshen. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. And they are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there's no pasture for your your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land and let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. We could preach for about the next hour and a half just on that little section. There's so much wrapped up in there, but I, I promise I won't do that. So, five brothers are presented. Now, how many brothers did Joseph have? He had 11. So there's 11 brothers that he could choose from, and he has to choose five to present to the most powerful ruler on earth. Five from among the 11. How many of them were innocent of wrongdoing in Joseph's life? One, Benjamin, because Benjamin didn't even know what was going on. So out of the 10 that were responsible for his many, many years of captivity, servitude, slavery, abuse. He has to pick five out of ten. How would it work in your family if you lined up your family and you said, I'm going to pick a few of you for a special task? Can you imagine the possibility of maybe making a mistake, maybe offending somebody else, of people, there might be somebody that says, ah, not me, and there might be eight others that say, pick me, pick me, you know? I wonder, I wonder how Joseph chose those brothers. But he did choose them, okay? He didn't say, Pharaoh, forget it. My brothers are not worthy to stand in your presence. Let me tell you what they did to me. He chose. He presented them. Now, right away, those brothers do something really important. They make it clear they have not come to Egypt to make that their new homeland forever. They present to Pharaoh and say, we are your servants. We've come to settle here for a little while. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are on a journey. Can can we find some safety and provision within the borders of your country, Pharaoh, until the time that we can go back to our land? Now, they would have had no idea at that point it would be over 400 years before they could go back. They did not come to Pharaoh demanding access to Egypt because, well, you've got it and we want it. They came and, and they can, can we? we've come to journey for a while. Can we settle here? Can we find some provision? Okay. They were not looking to stay in Egypt forever. Now, if I were Pharaoh, 
I would find that a relief. Because Pharaoh probably had people from all over the regions flooding into Egypt because they heard that there was food. Have there ever been countries on the planet that have things reasonably prosperous and people in the bordering countries would love to flood in because they find that, oh, wait a minute, that could be our country, right? Has it caused our country a a measure of angst when people want to cross borders because we have what they are dying because they don't have? Can it be a relief if we see that people either want to come to stay, to work, to labor, to participate, rather than a sense of, well, you've got it and we want it, so we want to come take what you've got. That just causes all kinds of turmoil within leaders and within people. And Pharaoh was probably very relieved that Joseph's family didn't come just to take. They came to sojourn. How about us? Are we here just to take? Or are we here to sojourn? Are we here to contribute? Or are we here to, just to draw from? So I think that there's, uh, there's a lot that we can learn just from this little passage, even about the things that our particular country or our state or our city are wrestling with as people come in desperation. It exposes issues of the heart. The Bible is magnificent about revealing our heart because that's what God's really after. It's easy to act. Outward conformity is not all that hard. I did that in church before I became a Christian. Outward conformity, we learn how to put it on. But God is after the heart. Now, something else I saw here about Joseph's brothers is they really weren't very good at listening. Okay? And I, I, to jump back to the end of Genesis 46, which Brad preached two weeks ago, the end of Genesis 46 says this in verse 33. These are Joseph's instructions. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that, we may, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, He's giving them specific instructions for their interview. And here's the reason why. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Okay? So Joseph is prepping them for their kind of job interview here. I'm going to take you before the most powerful man on earth. They didn't need to be reminded that Joseph was like right there too. And this is what you are to say. And this is what you are not to say by implication. Has anybody ever prepped you for a job interview and said, now, this is the kind of person you're going to interview with. Here's what he likes to hear. Here's what he likes to see. Here's what you should stay away from. And have any of you, or have I, ever gone into those things and immediately opened our mouth and all kinds of folly gushes out? And before we even get to the first question from the interviewer, Inside, we think, we're done. (laughs) This is toast. There's no chance. Okay, The brothers were specifically told to say, we have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now. And the reason is an emphasis on sheep and shepherding was probably not the way to entreat Pharaoh's favor because Egyptians looked at shepherds as those dirty people. 
they are with those dirty sheep. Okay? So what did they say when they came to Pharaoh, though? <laughs> what did, and he says, what's your occupation? Your servants are shepherds. And, I, you know, I, I wonder if Joseph did a face plant. You know, if there were emojis, he would have been on social media already. My brothers already blew it. <laughs> face plant. They couldn't just follow a simple... And I picked the best five. So we can probably all, can't we, recall times when we were encouraged what to say or what not to say? Gentlemen, how many of you have ever courted a young lady? And before you met the dad for the first time, that young lady that you want to you impress that father, that young lady said to you, now, this is my father's favorite sports team. You will find stuff all over the walls of his house about that favorite sports team. Do not walk in with the sports paraphernalia of his enemy on. Or do not walk in and say, oh, how could you ever like... And then we go do it anyway, right? We, the gauntlet is down and, and we do that kind of thing anyway sometimes. Now, Joseph could have judged his brothers for their past. Joseph could have said, I'm picking the best five, but I have no idea how this is going to turn out. But instead, we assume Joseph believed the best. He believed the best of those that sold him into slavery. I wonder how we would do. Their humility, their sorrow, their evidenced repentance for what they had done, I believe gave Joseph the confidence that he needed to give a good recommendation to Pharaoh. Now this was a test, not only of the brothers, but this was a test, an ongoing, constant, seemingly never-ending test of Joseph's heart. So why does God keep testing Joseph? Why do we keep reading about these prickly situations that Joseph is in? So that we can continue to find ways to say, hey, that's me. Hey, here's another place in the Bible I can identify. Some people think the Bible is just this religious book that only really smart people read. Some people think the Bible is a religious book that only foolish people read. But the Bible is a God-breathed book that desperate, needy people should read. And in every page, in every chapter, in every paragraph, there's a person's story that you and I should be able to find a place to connect with. Joseph kept passing tests so we can see that the grace of God is greater then our ability to hang on to grudges, to, to remember things we should forget, our ability to believe the best is what Jesus wants to do as he transforms us. Now, it's worth noting, too, what Pharaoh asked for. He says to Joseph, if there are any able men among them. Now, the word in the Hebrew translates to, to this, to men of strength or might. Not just, hey, are there any guys that wouldn't mess up too bad? Okay. Are there any men that will, carpe diem, they're going to seize the day? This is what an Egyptian ruler would be looking for. Are there any people that can grab hold of leadership and authority and wield it well to care for my livestock? This is an insight into the kind of people that the Egyptians thought would make good leaders. The world, you've probably noticed, the world gravitates to people like that. We like politicians that seize the day, whether they're liars, whether they're truthful, whether they know what they're talking about, whether they're just playing us. We gravitate to people that look like they are forceful, 
clear speaking. They know what their agenda is, even if they have no intention of ever carrying out that agenda or any ability to carry it out. We look for people that will seize the moment. Instead, we should be looking for people of godly character and humility and meekness and brokenness and the wisdom that comes from saying, I don't know it all, but by the grace of God, I will seek the Lord to lead well. Okay? The world loves people of forceful character. The kingdom of God is not meant to function that way. Unfortunately, even in the church, even in the body of Christ, we have problems like narcissism in the pulpit. We have problems like CEO pastors that rule with, a, with an iron fist. And I'm, I'm very, very, very grateful that here at Antioch, we don't have that kind of problem. We have a plurality of pastor elders that are servant leaders that defer to one another, that work together to be shepherds that lead well. Amen? Amen? That is not always the case. My wife and I have been around churches from New York to California and back and across and in and out, and not every place is like this place. So we need to treat it as precious, and we need to pray for our pastor elders that God will keep them in grace and humility and shepherd us well, and that we as sheep would be wise enough to allow ourselves to be shepherded well. That was a lot of the theme of last week's message. Okay. Now, now we get to something that I, I know I could preach for the next two hours on just this, this one verse, but I won't. Okay, verse 7 of chapter 47. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. I want you to picture this. Jacob, the sojourner, coming from the destitute land of Canaan, whose heart had just recently been revived, comes face to face with the most powerful ruler of the most powerful kingdom on earth. Two men from two completely different life experiences. Now, Jacob could have looked at Pharaoh and been bitter at the man whose people had made a slave of his son. This is the guy... I'm going to get him. That could have been in, in Jacob's heart. It might have been in my heart if I came to face to face with an abuser of my son. If you have children, just think how it would feel if you found out somebody abused one of your children. Think of what it would have been like if one of your children had been kidnapped and you found them 10 years later. Think of the worst of the worst, and that was the story of Jacob and Joseph. But that worst thing became best thing, didn't it? Okay? Joseph was placed there by God that his family would grow and remain. Jacob could have rebuked, rebuked Pharaoh for thinking of himself as God, right? The Egyptian Pharaoh was considered God in the flesh. Jacob did not do those things. Instead, he blessed him. Now, not just any blessing like, hey, bro, I bless you today, you know? Not empty words. No, Jacob, Jacob came from the line of Abraham. And God, through Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then all the way down to us, are a people whose primary responsibility on earth is to bless the nations with the revelation of, now in our day, the, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. The revelation that there's one true God. The revelation that you can have relationship with God. The revelation that God is worthy of being in, in, in fear and in awe because of his awesome power, but yet he wants to draw near to the human heart, which in, in weakness and tenderness and compassion and humility. Jacob came from the line of Abraham. And his mandate from God himself was to be used to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. We've told our kids since birth, and I know it gets shared here, we are blessed to be a blessing. That is why you and I are still alive on the earth today. That's the whole deal. Blessed to be a blessing. And it's not just, hey, what can I do for you today? It's, I know something. I've come to lay hold of some life-transforming truth in the person and work of Jesus by whose death and resurrection I am now united with my creator that I used to have a broken relationship with because of my sinfulness, my wickedness, my pride. It doesn't get any more blessed than that. We could walk out here and hand somebody a million dollars and have it do them no good whatsoever if they never find Jesus. Or we can walk out here and introduce somebody to Jesus and transform them forever and that's more, that, believe me, that's worth more than silver or gold. Amen? Okay. So I want to quote from uh, a guy that's no longer with us, a man named Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry said this, Though in worldly wealth Pharaoh was the greater, yet in interest with God, Jacob was the greater. He was God's anointed. Okay. Now, the ultimate anointed one is Jesus. But what about us? Have we been anointed by the Lord because we've become a part of his family? You and I carry an anointing from the Holy One, according to the scriptures. And we've got a mandate from heaven to share out of that anointing the blessed truth about Jesus. So, here's a question. Who has God asked us to bless? Is there anyone in your life, maybe, that you have reason to resent that God wants you to bless? Is there anyone in your life that you have reason to hope they fail because of something they've done, and God wants you to work for their success? I, I, I went through a list of life stories because I'm not preaching this just because that's the text. This is, this is a big deal because God has brought our family through some situations where we've been asked to bless those that hurt us. Uh, two fast stories. Once we were sitting in southern Illinois where I'd been pastoring and God revealed that he was getting ready for us to move. And where do we move next? Well, in the middle of the night, I had a dream one night, and God made it clear he was sending us back to Rochester, New York, the, the city that I moved away from about three times and kept getting sent back. You know, I don't know if I hadn't learned my lesson or what. But there was a pastor up there that was responsible for some deep wounds in my life, deep misunderstandings, deep hurts, 
And the Lord called us to go back and asked me to go back and serve alongside that man and bless him. Now, I went back hoping that he would see the error of his ways and he would tell me how sorry he was for the ways that he had hurt me. And you know what I found out? His memory of history was not the same as the one I had. And any hopes that I had of, you know, so-and-so is going to, you know, we're going to arrive in town and he's going to meet me at the, at, the, at the parking lot. Oh, Mark, please forgive me. Now, that didn't really happen. <laughs> but we did spend a couple years just being a blessing to that man because that's what God asked us to do. And guess what? Not only was that man blessed and that church blessed, but guess who else was blessed? We were because we walked in a different spirit than the resentment, bitterness, I remember what they did to me attitude. And I imagine that there's nobody in the room that can't think of something that still sticks, that still hurts that somebody's done. So sometimes God calls us to go and bless those that have hurt us. There's other times to bless. Back in uh, the summer of 2002, just about 20 years ago, right now, I was standing in Kabul, Afghanistan. Amy and I had had a chance to go take a disaster relief trip with a Christian organization. And we were in there shortly after the U.S. had gone in. Um, I went in June and she went in July. And there was a people group in Afghanistan that I've been praying with, uh, praying for for decades. They're called the Hazara. And they are the despised minority people of Afghanistan. Literally, the majority people do things like lock them in tractor trailers till they die because they can't stand them and they want to get rid of them from the country. Okay? But I've been praying for them for decades. And I was out on the streets of Kabul, Afghanistan with a, uh, a translator from a different people group, from the people group that can't stand the Hazara. And we go to a shop and there is a shopkeeper and I knew the instant I saw him He's a Hazara. And I got so excited. My translator got like, ew, yuck. And I decided I was out to buy some office furniture for a medical clinic. And I decided we're going to bless this shopkeeper. We're going to pay his asking price. Now, you don't all know me real well, but my wife knows me. I don't pay asking price for anything. <laughs> if I can't get it at least 30 or 40% off, I'll just wait, Okay because my idea of a blessing is a discount when it comes to buying stuff. But, you know, I was determined to pay this guy's asking price because I wanted to bless this shopkeeper. And my Pashtun translator kept saying, no, 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 we can negotiate him down. And I said, I don't want to. I want to be a blessing to him. No, 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 we don't have to pay that much. We can go somewhere else. No, no, no. And I, I get into this debate with this Afghan man, which, you know, looking back, on it, I don't know if that was safe or not, but that's what I did. And we told the shopkeeper we would pay his asking price. And then I asked something. I, I asked the translator to ask him if I could pray for a blessing on him. It was an elderly shopkeeper and a young grandson of the despised people in a broken down shack by the side of the road as they were scavenging things to try to sell to stay alive in the summer of 2002. And my translator, who is from the people group that can't stand these men, had to translate as I prayed that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would reveal himself, that God would bestow a blessing on this man's shop, that he would come to know the God of all creation, the one who made him. And the translator, I could, it, it was killing him. 
But the shopkeeper, he glowed. Now, I never saw him again. He's long ago left the earth, I'm sure, because of the age that he already was. But I know that that did something in his heart. And maybe, just maybe, if we speak words of blessing to those that the world despises, maybe, just maybe, some seeds are planted that can grow into gospel conversions. Okay? So I considered it one of the greatest privileges of my life to be in that town, in that city, at that moment, speaking to a Muslim translator, asking him to bless this other Muslim man. And, and, and it just, it was, it was an amazing experience. I could have gone home right then. Okay? And I do believe that there will be eternal fruit from being obedient to bless. So, there's implications to this blessing thing. There's implications to this anointing thing. You and I are the greater. We need to remember, okay? It's not our job to curse those that don't follow Jesus. It's not our job to tear down those that don't yet get it. What, what do you expect out of a non-Christ follower except for non-Christ-like actions? I mean, really, we, we, we need to, and I need to keep getting our heads adjusted. What we have a right to expect from sinners is what? Sin. That's what's going to come forth. Whether it's religious, like I was before I became a Christian, or whether it's very overt and nasty stuff. We would do well to remember that just like Jacob, in interest with God, we, the members of Christ's body, are the greater. Not in a pompous way, but in spiritual authority, in the impact of our words toward eternal matters, we have a position of speaking with authority and anointing. So maybe instead of ranting, like a lot of what's going on in America right now, maybe we should be blessing. Instead of yelling and screaming out loud or on social media, Maybe we should be interceding, asking God to bless, asking God to reveal, asking God to transform. Maybe as we are seen as different than what non-Christians perceive Christians are, maybe they would actually ask more questions than just when we try to get into debates and arguments and browbeatings. So Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. It doesn't get any more precious than this. The whole point of us being here on this journey is so that we can participate in God's incredible, lavish, grace-filled, and loving plan to offer redemption to those who do not yet know God. That's why we are still here. It's a big challenge for us here in prosperous America for us to remember that we are sojourners. No matter what we think we own, We must have a sojourner's heart. We're pilgrims on a journey with a story to tell and a blessing to offer. Okay, now to verse 8. We will get through the chapter. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, I, I love this, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. 
Now, how would you like it if you came before the most important ruler on the planet, and the first thing that he says to you after you offer your blessing is, hey, dude, how old are you? I've, I've taught a lot of school over the years, especially middle schoolers. And, you know, middle schoolers are not known for thinking before they speak. And once in a while, I'll get one that'll say something like, how old are you? And I'll say, how old do you think I am? And I've gotten answers ranging from, oh, I, you got to be at least 100, <laughs> you know, to other ridiculous things. But somehow they think that if I don't have hair, I must be ancient. Okay? It's just genetics. But, you know, doesn't it sound like a rude question from Pharaoh? He just gets blessed. Jacob just speaks to him out of his heart of the, the lineage of Abraham to bless Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, dude, how, how old are you? Well, there's a little story behind it. I couldn't find definitive information on how old Egyptians would be at that point in history. But most of them didn't live past their mid-50s. Okay? The oldest stuff that I could find was they didn't live past their mid-50s for whatever reasons. And how old is Jacob at this point? He's 130. Okay? He's 130 years old. He must look like a, a shriveled, wrinkled man, except that he was of the line of Abraham. So he probably, you know, Pharaoh just did. What do I, what do, I do with this? And Jacob didn't respond with, what do you mean how old am I? Who are you to tell you? He, he wasn't defensive. He stated some truth. When he said that his days were few and evil, he's probably remembering a lifetime of scheming and being schemed against. When he said that he had not attained to the life of his fathers, he could have been thinking about quantity of life, but more likely he was thinking about the quality of his life compared to theirs. So Jacob was a pilgrim that spoke truth, even if it was hard truth for even him to hear. Have you ever needed to say things to people that it was hard to confess because you know it, it was true about you, but it was hard to even get the words out? I've had plenty of those kind of times. The older we get, the more likely we have some of those times. I, you know, tell me some of your stories. Well, I've got some to tell, but some of them are just hard to even admit that I did this or I went through that or I've failed at this. But those are the things that God uses to communicate how he's transformed us. That's the story we've got to tell. Then we go on to verse 10. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Pharaoh gets a double blessing. Okay. Pharaoh gets blessed at the beginning. He asked Jacob a couple of questions that you and I might have thought were really intrusive, offensive, inappropriate. Who do you think you are? And on the way out the door, Jacob says, hey, I bless you again. Double blessing. See you later, Pharaoh. Can you imagine what would have gone through Pharaoh's mind after this encounter with a 130-year-old pilgrim who blessed him twice? Probably very disorienting. How disorienting would it be if you and I pondered the people that we could be the most irritated by and when we saw them, we spoke blessing over them? That, that's a challenge to me. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm preaching here too. That's a challenge because I can think of a few people that I kind of wish that God would deal with them. 
Okay, but that's not how God deals with me. And so I probably shouldn't want that on other people. Okay? So, let's move on to verse 11. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided for his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Joseph's family settled in what's called Goshen. Okay? They acquired property when all of the Egyptians were needing to sell theirs. There was favor for the residents of God's kingdom, for the kingdom kids. Favor was abundant. Provision was made in the best of the land. It was not favor, and this is important, it was not favor based on ethnicity. It was not favor based on self-righteousness. It was favor based on the eternal plans and purposes of God. And they could not boast about that, could they? They were settled in the best of the land. Okay, the Nile River flows up and empties in the Mediterranean Sea. The Nile River Delta at the north of Egypt was the most fertile land. That's the land they got. The best of the best of the land. So the heart of a sojourner, that's a humble heart. And God exalts the humble. Amen? Okay. Now let's move on. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of famine. Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money's gone. Joseph answered, give your livestock and I'll give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money's gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when the year had ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from our Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's there is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? By us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So here's something that's an interesting plot shift here. Joseph was very tender toward his family, even for all the woundings. Joseph provided for his family in the best of the land of Egypt, but Joseph was still a shrewd businessman because he was representing his boss, the Pharaoh of Egypt. He didn't just say, hey, uh, well, my Pharaoh has this and Pharaoh has... Let me just give away all that the government has because you want it. There was exchange taking place. It wasn't just a one-way thing. Or there would have been nothing. Okay? He was a shrewd businessman in dealing with the Egyptians. And this was an unfortunate, for some of the Egyptians, reality of living in a system that worshipped man rather than God. Okay? The Egyptians worshipped Pharaoh. He was their God. And the way this plays out is exactly how it plays out for any person, 
family, state, nation, region of the world that places man on the throne where God belongs. It does not work. The economy, does nev- it never works in favor of the little guy. Never, ever, ever. Okay? Then Joseph said to the people, verse 23, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. A lot of other translations say, And we will be slaves to Pharaoh. So it's not just, hey, we'll work for him a little bit. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Joseph acquired all the land, the people, all of the possessions. Now, you remember earlier when I reminded us that it was an abomination to the Egyptians to have shepherds in their midst? Do you remember earlier in Genesis when it was time for the brother, when the brothers came and it was time for them to eat? They didn't eat with Egyptians because it was an abomination to Egyptians to eat with the Hebrews? Do you remember how many other times we've already seen the Egyptians thought they were better than? Okay? Now what's come back to bite them? Their better than mentality. Their ethnic superiority, their attitude of, we are the best. We own it all. Well, yeah, we may give you some scraps. Oh, you're in a bomb. You go, you go eat over there. This is our world. We might have to tolerate you a little bit, but you're over there. We are going to marginalize you. And I'll tell you, in the economy of God, the minute we begin to marginalize people, God begins to prepare to deal with us. And so he dealt with all of the Egyptians in all of the land of Egypt so that by the time things were over with, they had nothing when they thought they had everything. Uh, we also can read in the text in some places where Joseph ends up resettling them into cities, removing them from their land. They were truly displaced people within their own country. They became almost like refugees within their own land, no longer able to live in the places that they lived because it was no longer their land. Everything was changing. So who were the refugees? Who were the impoverished? Who were the marginalized now? It was the Egyptian people because God humbles the exalted and he exalts the humble. Joseph's family came to sojourn, not to stay. But they got to stay in the best of the land when most of the Egyptians were removed from it. What's the moral of the story? Be very careful not to think more highly of ourselves and our ethnic heritage than we ought. The heart of a settler is proud, and God humbles the proud. Okay. Now, something else to notice is that even though Joseph had settled his family in Canaan, Joseph didn't say to Pharaoh, Hey, Pharaoh, I'm out of here. My, my, my father, my brothers, their families, my nieces, my nephews... They're here, so I'm leaving your service, Pharaoh. No, Joseph had to continue to manage the business affairs of the land of Egypt. So even though his family had come near, Joseph couldn't stay near. Okay? So here's another Matthew Henry quote. Note, 
Even natural affection must give way to necessary business. Parents and children must be content to be absent from one another when it is necessary on either side for the service of God or their generation. And what could that practically mean? That could practically mean that if you are raising children and you want those children to do all that God asks of them, and they come to you one day and say, I believe God is calling me to leave here and go there. Parents, you don't have the right to say you can't do that. This is where we're from. Or parents, if you look at your children, well, there was one time that we moved away from where most of our children, adult children were living, and some of our children were like, what a minute, what are you, you're, you're leaving home? Well, they were on their own, but... It rankled them a little that we moved. My wife and I and a couple of the kids moved to another part of the country. When we are in the service of the master, the master gets to tell us where we live. The master gets to assign our places of service. We do not get to say, well, this is where I'm from and we will stay forever. This is where my children will grow and I will always have my grandchildren nearby and I will guard and protect and nobody's going to, you know. I used to do a lot of mission mobilization work. And I used to have a top 10 list of reasons why children do not get to the mission field even though they wanted to. And near the very top of the list was a very painful truth. One of the top couple reasons the children that wanted to be missionaries did not ever get to the mission field was their parents. Because the parents wouldn't release them to serve the Lord. The parents were convinced they couldn't do it. The parents were afraid for their kids. The parents were scared for what might happen. And instead of blessing their kids to serve the Lord, the parents held on to them tightly. And a lot of kids never made it to where God was asking them to go. Okay? So, it's worth remembering that our natural affections are understandable, but they cannot rule our lives. God's callings are to rule our lives. Okay? So, a couple, couple things to ponder. You think the average Egyptian took the warnings of Joseph seriously to prepare for famine? I'm not sure they really did. Do we take God's warnings seriously when we read in his word woes or warnings, admonitions, exhortations? It's easy to read over that because we don't like those things as much. Uh, if I, if I you know, go to my Bible and I cut out all the things I don't like, yes, my Bible would be a lot lighter, <laughs> but it would be devoid of tr- the, the, the full truth of God. And we need to be willing to read what God has said in its entirety, and we need to believe it from cover to cover because it's his story that he's written for us. Okay, so let's close this out. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Jacob cared for Joseph the first 17 years of his life. Joseph cared for Jacob the last 17 years of his life. Think about that. So, kids... You that aren't parents here, look at your parents a second and say, I will be ready to care for you in the latter years of your life. (laughs) Kids, 
Love your parents. Parents, raise your kids so that if you ever have to go live with them, it will be a good thing. <laughs> okay? We don't want to end up moving in with a family member someday and then have them remember something they wish, we wish they would forget. Okay? Verse 29, And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh. That kind of sounds weird, but that was a very Middle Eastern way of, I'm, this is a promise, this is serious. We're going to get intimate here a second. Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. Why? Because he was a sojourner. Egypt was never, ever, ever his home. But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. Now, Jacob must not have been sure yet. He says, and he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So as we close out this chapter, we should ask ourselves, are we sojourners? Or are we settlers? I think this cuts to the heart of a lot of what ails the body of Christ in our country today. We want our cake and we want to eat it too. We want to accumulate the world's goods and we want to be flexible and available to Jesus and do whatever he wants. We want to live in safe and secure housing in quiet and peaceful neighborhoods and accumulate the the cars and the stuff. But of course we want to do whatever Jesus wants too. Now those things may work together, but they probably will not. Okay, A sojourner may have seasons of having a lot of stuff because God pours it out, but a sojourner holds it with an open hand, loosely, having it available for distribution as God asks. A sojourner may have the house of his dreams, the car that he couldn't wait to drive in his older years, and then God may say, okay, it's time to sell your house and move to Tajikistan. God may say, your neighbor's car broke down, give him yours. But God, I just bought the car of my dreams. Well, he's been dreaming of one of those too, and he can't afford it. So I, I let you get it so you can give it to him. That's a real test, isn't it? Of the heart of a sojourner. But it gets to the heart of the gospel. Will we be people that distribute? Or will we be people that hoard and collect with an entitlement mentality? I don't know about you, but I don't do well with people that have an entitlement mentality. I, I, I gag on it. I really do. But brothers and sisters, if we looked in the mirror and asked God what he saw, there's probably a part of all of us that has an entitlement mentality. And Jesus wants to deliver us from that so that he can use us to be a blessing. Okay? So, let's conclude. I said that about three times, didn't I? Settlers are always striving for earthly security. Settlers serve the kingdoms of this world. And settlers lose everything in the end. It's just the way it seems to work. In contrast, sojourners are never truly at home in this world. Sojourners serve the true king of all creation. Sojourners gain Everything in the end. Everything. 
you know, some of those incredible scriptures, you have been given all of the fullness of God. Well, you don't get much more everything than that, do you? The world does not understand those of us that live with an eye towards eternity. The world calls us fools if we don't spend our life trying to get ours. But most people waste their life vainly striving to get what does not satisfy and to get what cannot be taken with us when we leave this earth. The world tries to tell us to find a human God-man who's strong enough to lead us. And the world is wrong. The world is wrong. If the world was right, it would be working. How well is it working? <laughs> it's not working. The world is wrong, and those who follow in its ways are sure to discover sooner or later that a famine of food is nothing compared to a famine of life everlasting. We who follow the Lamb, we who understand that we are sojourners and not settlers, we who live with an eye that's turned heavenward, we are not fools. You may be familiar with this quote by a man named Jim Elliott who was martyred for his faith in the 1950s. It's a profound statement. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The gospel doesn't get any more real than that. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So as we come to the table today and we think about these elements... This is a fresh sanctification opportunity. This is a fresh chance to profess to the Lord, I choose today to be a sojourner. I choose to not cling to that which I cannot keep. I choose to open my hands, and Lord Jesus, I trust you with outcomes. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me whenever you partake of this. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is, this is the blood of a new covenant. This is, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he told us that when we partake of these elements, we are proclaiming what? Proclaiming his death. We're proclaiming our faith in his resurrection life. We are declaring that we believe he's coming again. We are believing there is reward for those that put their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus. Our tradition here at Antioch is we'll have two lines and you can come forward and break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice and partake of it, representing the body and the blood of Christ. There'll be gluten-free available over here. Now, it's important that I, that I say something about this because this is a meal for believers. We don't have time to get into all of what 1 Corinthians 11 says about why some are sickly and even die early, but it's connected with taking the Lord's Supper unworthily or out of faith, this is a believer's meal. So if you are a baptized believer, 
if you have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've been baptized, then this is for you, whether this is your home church or not. We welcome you participating with us and celebrating this feast together. If you're not a believer, we don't ask that you come up here. We ask that you do something different. Consider taking Jesus because he's the real bread of life. Amen? He's the real living water that we desperately need. There will be pastors and, and people in the back to pray. If you have questions about Christianity, if you have questions about how to become a sojourner instead of a settler, instead of having, heading up here, head to the back and ask somebody to pray for you. Maybe explain a little bit about the gospel. We want to celebrate this love feast together. We want to declare that we believe in a resurrected Lord who's going to return on clouds of glory to take his sojourners to live with him forever. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this meal. We celebrate you today that you are the one who was and is and is to come. You were the ultimate example of a humble servant. You demonstrated for us what it looks like to be obedient to the will of the Father, even unto death on the cross. You did not consider equality with God something to cling to and hold on to with a tight fist, but you willingly and freely gave your life on a couple pieces of wood held there by nails and rope because you looked beyond the pain of the cross beyond separation from your father that was temporary for the joy that was before you you endured it for us we thank you for this that we get to celebrate together in Jesus name amen